1: cropping advisor for local land services. As you kick back over the holidays, we're excited to present the Seeds for Success Summer Series, a special crop of episodes all about drought management. In this series, we've gathered the best advice and stories from our past episodes, and we've focused on the challenges and strategies for farming during drought conditions. These insights are especially relevant right now as we find ourselves on the cusp of another dry season. Let's get into it. First up, you hear from Gabriel Passmore. Gabriel usually spends his days in the corporate world in Sydney, but during the last drought, he found himself back in the family's cattle properties around Forbes and Condobalan. To get through the drought, they had to get creative and learn how to make a little go a long way. Jill Kelly spoke to Gabriel and asked him about the challenges they faced.
2: We live southwest of Forbes, but we're a bit spread out. We've got a couple of other blocks. There's another one at Goolagong and then uh, one out west and the original farm as well. So it's actually about 150 kilometres from the furthest west farm to the furthest east and it's about 3,000 hectares in total.
3: Yeah, so I guess being so spread out, there's a lot of work to do there and it must take a lot of input, so hence you need to come home on the weekends.
2: Yeah, so I probably wasn't quite as involved as I am now pre-drought. So so before twenty eighteen I sort of, yeah, just used to come home for, for preg testing or calf marking or, or some of the bigger sort of events that were going on and and didn't have as much of a hand. I came home in March twenty eighteen. I was between jobs and I was gonna actually start my new job that I've got now. And I got home and saw how bad the conditions were, like the condition of the land and saw the condition of the cattle and I went to the hay shed and I counted up the amount of bales and I came back into the kitchen and said to mum and dad, there's exactly 17 days of hay left. What's the plan? Are we going to buy some more? And there probably wasn't too much of a plan laid out on the table apart from let's wait for a bit of rain. So I sort of thought I'd better yeah, stay and try and um, give me a bit of a hand.
3: What was the plan after the 17 days? What did you do?
2: The first thing we did was we consulted a, a, an animal nutritionist as well as the local land services vet in the area, Belinda Edmonston, and we spoke about the condition of the cattle, what was needed, what we had to do to try and try and get the best result for these cows going through winter because it was obviously going to be a pretty tough winter. And the the plan was, or the, the plan that was laid out, was to, to buy a lot of feed and get the ration right. I think, you know, before, before 2018 I had no idea uh, what animal nutritional requirements were
3: I think that's pretty typical of a lot of people going into the drought. Do you think that maybe people didn't really know how to feed, they just chucked a bit of hay out and that would have worked had it rained, but it just didn't
2: rain. Yeah, and I think that was probably the mindset for a long time and it probably worked in previous droughts, you know, like I I know talking to dad that used to be it, you'd just have a bit of hay on hand and got dry at the end of summer before an autumn break and you just go and throw a bit of hay out to support them and 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 then it'd rain and everything would be okay and you'd just be back to to the normal system and unfortunately this time that didn't work no rain did come and and i know in my discussions with people across new south wales that i spoke to about yeah how much do you actually have to feed like let's try and do some budgeting here people just didn't know and people didn't know about feed tests people didn't know about protein and ME requirements for for the feed and it was, yeah, it was just always that old school system of throw a bit out and see how we go.
3: Yeah, I think it was a really steep learning curve for lots of people but really tough to learn under those extreme conditions because I think by the time it cut in, probably the cows were skinny so, you know, there was a lot of pulling them back up to do. Was that the case for your farm?
2: Yeah, definitely. So, like, the first thing we had to do was wean everything straight away. So we ripped all the calves off; they were probably a bit big. Ripped all the calves off straight away and tried to to pile into trying to get a bit of weight back on the cows. But also, you know, we did we did try and do it in a fashion where we weren't just shoveling really expensive feed down their throats and costing a lot of money. We did try and do it in a cost effective way. And to be honest, it it really probably in hindsight was still feeding for survival and not feeding for production. So we did actually have a relatively high mortality loss. Like I had to destroy a few cows that they, they couldn't get up or, or various things went wrong. The problem that we probably found was that, you know, compounding is not just a thing in finance. Like it's a thing in drought where when one thing goes wrong, then another thing goes wrong and then another thing goes wrong. And that was continuous. You know, we had weak cows that were getting bogged in dams and the country spread out. So... You'd be driving between all the country to go and try and feed everything and you didn't get a chance to check a dam and then you'd come back and there'd be a dead cow in there and that's depressing. So you've got to drag her out and go again. And, yeah, we started to, once those cows started calving, develop further problems with cows just walking away and leaving calves. So we we actually ended up buying 13 dairy cows from a dairy farmer and I think at one point the most calves that we had on them was 70.
3: That's amazing. That's really innovative. I wouldn't have thought of that.
2: I used to work in the Gulf of Carpentaria for a couple of years and a mate who lives up there with his family, they told me about it once, how they used to just buy a few dairy cows from the Darling Downs and they t- took them up there and they'd just whack potties on them. And uh, I sort of thought, well, if they can do it north of Cloncurry, I don't see any great reason as to why it shouldn't work here. And there was a, yeah, there was a few teething issues trying to get these old cows that had never actually had a calf suck on them before, getting them to accept the calves. So I think mum had sort of the week of hell trying to get these... Poor old cows to take these calves in the crush. But once they got on, yeah, it worked really well.
3: Yeah, that's fantastic. How'd your weaning go? Did you manage to feed all those weaners?
2: Yeah, so it's pretty interesting sort of the difference that we had in, in 2018 because then obviously in 2019 and again at the start of this year, we we had to do a pretty radical wean. So those weaners in 2018, they were all pretty big. Just to go back to, to the problems that we had, like it wasn't a, only – calves being abandoned, we had a big problem with pneumonia. It was prevalent. We had problems that we'd never seen before, like meningitis in the calves. So I actually spoke to a few people about getting ready for weaning in 2019. They said, oh, just mark your calves first because, yeah, that's going to be a stress and you want to do that while they're on mum So just bring them in, mark them, leave them my mum for four weeks and then you can be ready for weaning. And it turned out that was actually the wrong thing to do because it triggered a meningitis surge in the calves. We lost 20 calves out of one mob of about 150 just the next day. Wow. So in terms of then the actual weaning, in in 2018 it wasn't too bad. Like we had a fair number of cattle to handle and the problem was feeding everything. So we knew we had to feed them cotton seed and we had to get this sort of high protein, reasonably high energy feed into them to g- actually get them growing. The problem we had was we didn't actually have the infrastructure to feed any of it out and we had a problem with water infrastructure as well, which will probably come up a bit later, but the feeding infrastructure was a problem. So we knew we had to feed them on uh, high protein, high energy stuff. So we'd never fed cotton seed before. So we got a load of cotton seed, just got one B double and you know, people sort of said, oh yeah, you can try and just work it out on a kilo a day. And, got some tractor tyres, cut the sides out, threw them in the paddock, couple of old tubs and thought, all oh, right, we'll do what I've seen people do before in photos where you go out and have it just a uh, tray load on the ute and you shovel it out. We, if we'd done it that way, like that's all we would have done every single day was just take cotton seed. So we ended up getting cattle panels and it's funny, like you know, until it's been done, like no one sort of knows and I spoke to a couple of people and they said, oh, I don't know if that'll work like we, we dumped a load in the paddock first without cattle panels because people I'd heard were doing that and just accepting the waste. That got completely trampled and just completely ruined, which it's a $15,000 load of feed. That's pretty depressing. So then we got cattle panels and dumped it into cattle panels and it's actually just like a self-feeder. It just creeps in as they go and there's no waste and that was a terrific way of doing it.
3: Oh, that's a great idea.
2: That actually worked really well. That was really good for the wieners. So we did that for all the mobs. So we had piles of cotton seed everywhere where the B-double had literally just back up in the paddock into the cattle panels, dump both trailers in there, we'd close it up and then that was sorted. Then we had them on a little bit of grain that was just trail fed. We hadn't sort of got around to actually getting troughing setting up or anything like that because we were just running behind, you know, like we were just chasing our tail all the time trying to keep everything going. And at the time too, in 2018, we were actually carting 50,000 litres of water a day because we'd run out of water on the home farm so that compounded things.
3: Wow. And then you spent a fair bit of money, didn't you, to put some water infrastructure in?
2: Yeah, we did. So so we sort of started that program in 2018 because we actually got all the dams cleaned out as well. Like we lost 40 cows in dams over 2018 into the start of 19. So we, we couldn't get them all fenced up in time, you know, like because you sort of think, oh, well, just fence them out. But like we had four people running flat out trying to feed cattle and we didn't have the time and we probably didn't have the money to get contractors in to get organised to try and – fence those dams out but they did all need cleaning out anyway. so we had a an excavator come in and he cleaned out every dam in every place which was pretty good and so then yeah we started a, a pretty big program where we've ended up putting in about 27 k's of poly 100 troughs yeah every place is pretty much completely watered we on the home block we actually had to go down the road and drill a bore and run a pipeline up the road but that place has never had water so that's worked really well.
1: Okay, let's stay with Gabriel for now, because he had some important lessons to share. The drought was really hard on the Parsmore family, and they quickly learned they had to make some difficult decisions about how they managed their herd. Jill Kelly asked Gabrielle about how they had to change their approach. So when
2: we started, there was a real problem that we found with probably focusing 90% of the time and energy on 10% of the herd and those down cows and the sick calves and all those animals that really probably were never going to make it but they were taking up a lot of time in trying to save them. Things like, you know, things like finding a down cow in the paddock and that can take four hours to go and actually get her, pick her up, bring her back to the house, try and give her a bit of feed, like put a bit of Hartman's solution into her, all that sort of stuff to try and get her up and get her going. And then by the time you do that, particularly too, what we found, like we ended up bringing all the cattle back to the home block or back to the two two closest blocks once we actually got the water set up because so much of our time was actually travelling. Travelling, getting there, feeding out, finding a problem, trying to deal with that problem. That took up time. Then you'd miss another mob and that's where the compounding came in. Like It just this snowball effect of just bloody everything going wrong. And once we were able to actually get ahead a little bit with a radical wean, which, which we had to do, and we still lost some cattle in 2019, even though we did that, we were sort of a lot better into the tail end of 2019, into 20 where we had those cows in better condition, uh, we didn't have those problems. Like we didn't have those problems of pneumonia in the calves. We didn't have the problems of cows going down. We didn't have the problems of meningitis where calves would just drop and start fitting in front of you and then peg it about 20 minutes later, which is pretty depressing. And it knocked Dad around a fair bit. Like he, he, he really got knocked around by that.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask you, you, talk about compounding. It must really compound on your mental health too.
2: Yeah, it definitely did. So I think that it had a, a really profound effect on Dad. And I think he'd, he definitely admitted himself, he sort of actually froze up. So, what ended up happening, particularly with buying more feed and and, and making some of those decisions was we, we just had to buy it, actually sort of committed to a fair bit of feed behind his back and just didn't tell him and then it sort of kept rolling in, which was good. But that decision making was made in conjunction with mum because... Uh, it, sort of, it was it was pretty overwhelming and Dad was spending so much of his time trying to get those sick animals up and going again and just putting so much time and emotion and, and effort and energy into it that I think it was pretty draining for him and you could definitely see it in his face. Like, it knocked him around a lot and in his eyes, you know, he just always looked pretty drained, pretty sad because he's just seeing his life's work sort of melt away in front of him.
3: Drought decision paralysis is a real thing, isn't it? I saw farmers mid-drought just, yeah, unable to make decisions. It it really affects your decision-making.
2: Definitely. It definitely affects your decision-making. It affects your decision-making with your business. I think you see things like tempers shorten. You see things like really poor decisions being made because – uh, people don't take the time to step away and actually have a think because it's just the weight of the world on their shoulders. So then when they do actually finally make a decision, it's probably not the right decision or a good decision that they've had time to think about. So I've definitely seen firsthand. It is a real thing.
1: Next up, you'll hear from Tala Luton, who runs the Livestock side at the camp, a cropping and livestock operation east of Canemble. During the drought, Tala found they needed to be flexible to survive Jill Kelly sat down with Tala and asked her about the changes they made. Here's Jill.
3: I really admire what you guys have been doing. Like you approached a drought, you made the big decision to sell those beautiful breeding cows and then you've made yourselves really flexible. You've gone into sheep and you've learnt as much as you can, you know, in the sheep game in a short period of time. How have you done that? How have you had the mindset to be that flexible and who have you learnt from? Who have you surrounded yourself with? How have you done that?
4: Definitely the training is a bit of everything and the advice is a bit of everything, a bit of everyone and everything. And as much as I can get hold of and absorb, I'm quite a fan of, if you don't know it, you need to go and know it.
3: For so. someone who says she's not academic, the <laughs> amount of information that you absorb is incredible. It must be the passion that, that drives it.
4: I think so. I definitely think that's what it is. You you know, if you really love it, you really you really get involved in it. So yeah, no that's definitely been a big part of it. I think right back at the start with the cows, it was definitely hard, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, they were beautiful big Angus cows and dad and mum had put a lot of work into breeding those cows. I think I just was watching people around us and talking to a few people and working out, you know, was we'd already started feeding those cows in seventeen and and I was just thinking, This this is this is hard. And this this doesn't seem like we're making any gains. It just feels like we're going backwards you're just throwing off the hay and they're not even doing that well like there's more to this or we can do this better and then yeah we we dabbled in the sheep we sort of had a small mob on the side all the time and in 17 we sort of were like these guys are kicking goals these guys are making this easy and they're going to produce they're going to have wool they're still going to have their lambs and then we've got a ewe to sell if we need to sell her as well I was like these guys are doers so we sort of ramped that up a bit sold a few extra cows and then probably I think it was must have been midway 18 we had the best mob of cows in one paddock and the rest in three mobs of 50 and the top mob of 50 I said well these are sort of the best ones that we've got left and if we sell them we're not keeping any more. like they're all gone like that that'll be it because they're the best so we ended up selling them and so the rest went and we ended up trading into scanning lamb ewes. Our first mob landed in them at the start of 2018 with hopeful aspirations. It might rain. Yeah, pretty much that, that you know, it might rain. But at the same time, we were like, well, you know, we, we can probably feed these if we have to. So, mm. you know, we'll, we'll, we can make it work with these. And so we did. And like, you know, I'm sure like many that year, our lambing percentage wasn't awesome but we actually got good lambs and we got good wool and we ended up building a feedlot for the lambs, a drought lot or whatever you want to call it, and put through a couple of mobs and actually ended up buying in mobs to trade through there because we we had we had grain. So that worked really good and we did a few different trials. on. We bought a mob of Scandinavian lamb to Merino lambs, So we had Merino lambs going through the feedlot next to crossbred lambs going through the feedlot and that was really fascinating. I remember at the time... We were like, well, the, you know, the Marinos aren't going to do very well when they were actually booked in on the same day, same kill, different sheets. And it turned out on whatever that was, whatever that month was, the skin value was so high for the Marinos, they came out exactly the same. I remember thinking that, I was like, oh, log that away. That's really important to note that you never know, you know, what might change and, you know, what opportunities are there that you don't think and see. So,
3: Yeah. Yeah, if you think outside the square, there might be just something there that you can value add and, yeah, and make a buck out of. exactly.
4: And I think that's sort of, we've looked at a lot of things through the business and and gone, oh, well, we need to be adaptable. We need to be flexible here. You know, we've sort of made some bigger changes that look really big and really drastic at times, but we think we've crunched the numbers and from advice and things like that, that in the in the long run actually it will be better for us it will work out better for us it will be better on labor it will be more effective more time friendly and things like that so I suppose that's what it comes down to going through each of the scenarios I'm a bit of a planner so I go I have sort of a b c z a (laughs) plan that's (laughs) probably a good trait for a farmer (laughs) yeah yeah, sometimes. So I do get told I'm a little bit a stickler sometimes on on the details. More of those
3: dad's traits, do you think?
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely dad's traits on that one, yeah. yeah. So that, yeah, that, that happens a bit. So I think that definitely helps, yeah.
3: It's rained. And so what, what's the plan now? Are you aiming to get back into cows or are you just going to remain flexible? What's the plan? I think flexible is
4: as our goal. We've got heifers on at the moment. We've got um, 400 head of cattle on crop. Um, at the moment and right back at the start we discussed you know options with them and I think the options are still wide open I think that's sort of how we're playing it a bit now we can join them obviously heifers don't get as much as as steers do but at the time they were a pretty good price compared to everything else they were quite good and yes it does help having Ricky as a bit of inside knowledge occasionally so there was the option to join them the option to sell them as or a feeder heifer so you sort of left yourself in the game with both those deals, depending on what the year did. Like if the year had cut out, well, you're not gonna you're not gonna be joining them. But if the year continues on and people are really looking to restock, they actually might want that he- empty heifer, or they might want it full of calf. You just you've got to gauge those yeah, things options. a bit. Yeah, that's mm. right. Not right back into cattle, probably. Um, probably still keep trading and put them on crop. We seem to have pretty good success with that, um, seems to be working for us. The sheep, we will cut down some of those ewes, I think, and just keep a quite a small little mob of breeders. They're all older ewes, so they will get to the point where we'll probably, we'll have to replace them. But we've always looked at all the ewes as tradable. Um, it's just how we do that. And at the moment, a few months ago, even even still now, ewes are fetching really great prices. Um, Scanning lamb, young ones. So we've got some merino ewe lambs hitting the ground, so we either might save them for ourselves or they might be sold in the market. So same thing, we just sort of want to have all those options open, each of those enterprises, so we can go which way.
1: Next up, we've got Jack Brennan, who manages Marimba, a 20,000 hectare sheep and cropping property between Warren and Quombo. Jack acknowledges that during the drought they made some mistakes, but they also did a lot right too. Jill Kelly sat down with Jack and asked him what the drought taught him.
5: Droughts don't sneak up on you. They're they're slow and progressive, typically. I mean, for us, the tap turned off, but we still had seven months' worth of grass in us without compromising the sort of ground cover and the soil structure so much. Saw we had seven months' worth of grass, so we started feeding at five months in to try and extend that period, and we thought, well, if we can push it through to the next change in the season, we'd probably get a rain. Anyway, that didn't happen, and we know all of that in hindsight, but I guess what we did was make early decisions to, number one, invest in our country. I think we put some actual financial figures around that. I did quite a bit of work on how much ground cover actually costs you to take it off when you actually get a rain event because of the lack of response. So we locked them up. We let them out to join, probably, well, absolutely a mistake in hindsight. We probably should have just fed them through confinement because we still fed them in the paddy. But we had had a, bit, a little bit of rain, so we thought we needed some grass in the system to ensure a in. And then, yeah, we realised that that was a mistake. And we sent away on adjustment. We tried to find homes for them and we sold too. We just keep looking at what is the most overvalued animal in our system and we pull her out and we sell her. Um, We also have that great benefit of having all this data that we've collected on our breeders so we have an ability to distinguish who are the high performers either in an age group or across certain sections of, of the breeding group so we can identify the sheep that have not contributed as much. We've just sort of really quite quickly, I think, by the start of 18 had really locked them up. We sacrificed some country at the start and then we just... We're seeing the really obvious things that all the literature tells you about, but, of course, you've got to go and test yourself and stuff it up, like, you know, the couple of free megs you get if you actually put them in a pen as opposed to run them in a paddock, stop them walking. So we just slowly progressed, built more pens and just got really uh, very accurate at feeding. Like, at the start, we probably... We're playing around a bit and guesstimating a fair bit and, you know, where they're over heavy and then they're underdone and, and, you know, your timing's all over the shop and I think something they've learnt. Like sheep are creatures of habit, so keep it the same, keep it consistent and get it right and you'll get a result. Yeah, so now just everything's weighed. We didn't spend a lot of money to try and do it, like we've got little sets of cattle scales on the backs of utes that weigh out grain and things like that. And yeah, it just got better and more accurate and more defined and smaller mobs and broke them down and weighed them more and split them up into smaller weight categories and just kept chilling off the edges. And the, the really exciting thing about it all is we're getting really predictable results. So you you know you feed them right and you get them in the right condition score and you put the right number of rams in, they've been checked and everything. And all of a sudden, you know, you get 90, 95% of them in lamb, like it's good.
1: Staying with Jack for now, whilst he and the team managed the drought successfully, like most farmers, they didn't always get it right. Jill Kelly asked Jack to reflect on some of their failures, and in this clip, Jack talks about the lessons they learned from them.
5: There's been a a number of failures that have borne change and innovation, I think, and that's probably as important as the outcomes once you've made the mistakes. People often want to just talk about the outcome and how good they are now, but I think it's more important that we talked about what we stuffed up, and look, the old process was very much just put two mobs together, bring them in, pull the lambs off, vaccinate the lambs, weigh them, and split them up probably three ways onto a couple of loosened blocks or something, and see you later, good luck. I remember when I first started doing that, I was just blown away on the, on the farm of this scale that we'd muster them and they'd be like three or 4% missing and sometimes five or six and like, no, nah, they're out there, go and do another muster, but guess what, they never end up because <laughs> they were dead. And so, you know, that, that the ball had started rolling before the drought, that we knew that there was a process issue or maybe lots of issues, when weight issues, probably some genetic issues or definitely some genetic issues and whatever else. But what the, what the drought has done is fast tracked us to have to get that right and get it better Um, We haven't got it perfect, but yeah, year one, it was a very similar process to a paddock wean situation, but they went into a feedlot, confined pen situation. We had troubles with acidosis and we had too many in a pen and it was a tear your hair out job. The lambs were too light. We weaned them very light. The lambs were fed properly in utro, but probably not post, you know, we thought we were doing the right thing, but we were also trying to save a lot of dollars and what it ended up is costing us heaps. So we had high mortality. Yeah, and now look, we got an outcome eventually. You, you push through it and you look back on that two months and never want to go through it again. So that inspires you to go and fix something. And then, yeah, I think we also were convinced that stress was playing a huge role in in that weaning process. I mean, we've all done the low-stress stock handling courses and the grazing for profit courses that tell you that, but there's never actually been any significant scientific data to back it up. Certainly not in sheep, there's a lot of it around cattle. I've always believed it in cattle. I think if I can just indulge for a second that the the problem with it was always that they would look at sheep responses to stress as in behaviour post the event. And often the behaviour is exactly normal within minutes or hours. And so that was their precursor to say, well, there's no stress there. But what we've discovered with great research by people we know recently is that it's a hormone release issue that then from some research i have seen recently says that post the shearing event, a ewe is still running high on adrenaline type hormones that are affecting her feed conversion 11 weeks post the shearing event. If that's not an indicator that stress is causing issues, I don't know what is. The process this year was to be as low stress as we possibly could we did not mark the lambs before we weaned them we didn't mark them we left them on their mums we fed them properly we had them in and out of the yards banged up there at one stage but in most cases in three hours there was no needles they weren't weighed they were drafted on eye put in a pen we used a few products to try and calm them down whether they worked or not i still don't know but and yeah and then we fed them we just put grain in front of them and we had them well trained on grain and we just saw amazing turnarounds very very low mortality at six weeks post weaning may have been 0.1 of 1% mortality post weaning unbelievable growth rates which you do see there's a lot of compensatory growth there to be done but to be had and we saw better growth rates we also saw much higher weaning weights and yeah it was just it's been a really good outcome so at this point right now um, we actually weighed some lambs this morning and I think our sheep today are about 16 kilos heavier Today, than they were at this point last year.
3: That's amazing.
5: We didn't have a sheep ready to kill last year until the end of March, and we weighed some lambs this morning. They averaged 57 kilos, which means that they're probably, I mean, they're ewe lambs, so we're not going to kill them, but they probably would have been ready to kill three or four weeks ago. Oh,
3: fantastic. So, you've made the tough decision to reduce your flock numbers, to reduce your breeding ewe numbers, and you've mentioned that you did that based on data gathering and working out which ewes were underperforming. Can you talk to me how exactly you do that?
5: Yeah. So when the ewes are made and we just collect five pieces of fleece information. Um, also whether that lamb was born as a scanned twin or a single, and then we collect four weights up until yearling weight and we look at growth and then we actually feed all of that information into an economic index and the ewes then get ranked in their contemporary group. And then that's that's how it works. So, you know, you can go in and just draw the line wherever you like. They go over an auto drafter, they've got an AID tag in their ear. That economic index can vary in some years. The, the importance of using it amongst their contemporaries, like in an age group, is that of course seasonality has a huge impact across age groups. You have to be very careful how you use raw data to select animals. But when we account for all of those factors that we can understand being twin or single and you know where they were born whether they're born out of a maiden and all sorts of things and we adjust for that and then rank them we feel like we're getting it's not perfect if I had to take a number I'd say we're 85 percent accurate on being able to identify where the best performing sheep are on the farm and where the lower performing sheep are now of course we take the culls out so when I say lower performing in some years the variation can only be I think one year, 2014, it might have been $6 across every animal in that age group and then you get really good years like 2018 where I think the variation was something like $70 across the age group Mm. and, yeah, again, you would have to wonder how much the environment's influencing that but the fact still remains is that they're all only compared against their contemporaries and then, yeah, we just draw a line and say, okay, it's going to cost us Let's take a number, $56 to feed a ewe for the next seven months to get it through to the next decision point, which would most likely be scanning, let's say, and then we'll make a decision then on what gets sold if it hasn't rained. And any ewe that does not produce $56 in fleece income between now and then doesn't get a start. So I'm pretty confident that 85% of the sheep that stay are going to cover the cost of us doing that. So it's a net net. And if you can come out break even in a drought year, I think you're going all right. And that's that's always been our mantra that we need to at the very lowest break even in a drought year and then when we get a crack at it, you know, you need to hit it out of the park and average it out and you become over a five or ten year period a profitable farm. And
3: so speaking of that, hitting it out of the park, the day that it rains, what are you just itching to sink your teeth into out here? What's going to be some of the things you're doing?
5: I feel like we're pretty well prepared in that all of our cropping country at least is ready to go. But for us, it's going to be getting better at growing better pasture, more pasture on less rain. So, you know, we've always um, looked at this as a, as a grass growing business and the animals come to utilise the grass. I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche, you hear people say that, but I think it's a really, a really good point that you've got an asset, the asset is, is a bucket, and I think you actually have the ability to put some hungry boards on that bucket and fill it up a bit more. And I don't think we've been particularly good at it. I mean, we spend a lot of time on genetics and not enough time making sure that those genetics get expressed. And the way you do that is make sure that the nutrition is never compromised. And that's another great lesson from the drought. When you feed a sheep accurately and directly and never let them have a check, then you have lifetime productivity, I believe, out of those animals and phenomenal individual production outcomes. So it'll be growing grass and we, we, we're a loosened base pasture system and it's all dead. So getting that right, it's, go, it's going to be hairy because I don't want to go back in and plant the whole loosened base again in one year. It sort of stuffs up our rotation and stuff. So how do we fill the gaps economically, fill the gaps in pasture growth to get our stocking rates back up and make sure we don't compromise individual animal performance? And that's a hard balance to strike, but I think that's going to be the, the exciting challenge of post-drought is... How do we actually make this better than it was before and more accurate and more direct and and get better outcomes?
1: So that's it for today's episode. If you want to listen to the full interview with any of today's guests, you can find links to those episodes in the show notes. I'm Tim Bartemote and I'll chat to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders, and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events, and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.